The earth and heavens bless you from his holy place. Well, let's turn back in our Bibles again this morning to the gospel according to Mark. And we're going to read in Mark chapter 2 and verses 1 to 12. There's usually an NIV up here, but it's disappeared, so I have no idea what page that is on. Um, But it's Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, and reading from the first verse. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, at this early stage in Jesus' ministry, he had moved from Nazareth, where he had, for all practical purposes, been rejected to live uh, by the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, uh, perhaps in a family home, perhaps, uh, as some think, in Peter's home. So, it was reported that he was at home And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I have a friend who was director of what's known in the United States as the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, of which I suspect some of you have heard, who told me once that when he counsels uh, certain people in difficulties, uh, he gives them a list of Jesus' parables. There are people with a Christian background, know the story of the Gospels, know the titles of the parables. 
He puts the list down before them and says, which of these parables really irritates you? And it's a pretty shrewd uh, counseling technique, isn't it? Um, It's a bit like the Christian version of the Rorschach inkblot test of happy memory. Um, Which of these parables irritates you? And of course, I assume he asked the question because the parables were actually meant to irritate people. Yes, they were instruments of teaching, but it's pretty clear that Jesus intended them to get inside people where they really were and reveal themselves uh, so that then the word of the gospel might transform them. I think perhaps in a similar way, in a completely different context, it would be possible to put down before people a long list of the miracles of Jesus, which I guess most of us in the room would recognize, and ask this question, which of these miracles most of all makes you want to stand up and cheer for Jesus? Which of these miracles, most of all, makes you want to stand up and cheer for Jesus? If the, if the parable technique would reveal something about the, the sinfulness of our hearts, I suspect the miracle technique would tell us something about our relationship with the Lord Jesus. It would tell us what we really thought of Him. It might even reveal the fact that we didn't want to stand up and cheer at all. That is to say, we would have been on the edge of the crowd at this miracle, and we'd just be standing back and saying, show us something that will really impress me. By contrast with these people who at the end of this passage in Mark's gospel clearly want to stand up and cheer. And I think if you're ranking miracles by the cheer test, this miracle would certainly come in the top five, not least because of the the wonder of what Jesus does, but because of what He says in this cramped space in either His house or Simon Peter's house. Uh, It's interesting, at least in my knowledge, the commentators on this passage never seem to bring out the horror that this must have been to Peter's wife if he was living in uh, Peter's house, and to Peter's mother-in-law, whom Jesus had earlier healed. It, It is an amazing event. And it's an event that should, should make you read it and, and then have a smile on your face when you come to the end of it, because it's one of those miracles, one of those works of grace and power that Jesus does that has transformation of life at the center of it, and also the expose of the sinister elements in the human heart. And I want us to uh, look at this parable as simply as we possibly can, because there are lessons to be learned here that, that actually we learn again and again in the miracles of Jesus. Because, of course, uh, this uh, miracle is itself a parable. The, the parables are words that do things. They irritate. 
or they illuminate. The miracles are actions that say things. And this is one of those miracles that says a very great deal about the Lord Jesus. And the most obvious one is this, that it tells us that Jesus draws people to faith. Jesus draws people to faith. Now, that's a kind of, you know, ho-hum thing to say, isn't it? That's kind of obvious. But it's perhaps not so obvious as we sometimes think. Here is Jesus in the house. Mark's gospel appears to be Mark's record of Peter's preaching. And like many other passages in Mark's gospel, you could turn this very easily into an eyewitness account. It's got all the drama, all the vividness, all the action of Mark's gospel. And here Jesus is preaching. And there's so many people have come that the house is crowded, outside is crowded, and these folks who are bringing their paralyzed friend are not able to get into the house. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you see here? What do you see here? My guess is most of us see four men bringing a paralyzed friend. But look again at what the text says. It doesn't say that there were only four men who were bringing the paralyzed friend. It tells us among his friends, there were four friends who were actually carrying him. So this is an, this is an amazing little group of people who have arrived, you know, you can excuse them for arriving late, but they have arrived late for the party. And they're desperate to see Jesus because they have either seen, probably seen, certainly heard about Jesus doing mighty works in Capernaum, and they are absolutely convinced that Jesus can heal their paralyzed friend. And uh, you think, well, of course, uh, of course they would believe that, but that is an astonishing thing to believe. It's an astonishing thing to believe about Jesus. So, let me ask you again, what do you see here? You see this this group of friends, and four of them are carrying this paralyzed man, and they can't get in. They're desperate to get in. They get up to the top of the house, and they start raking around in the tiles or in the mud, and they make a hole. And what we see is, uh, well, you can, you can, was the dust going on Jesus' head, Jesus looking up? At least in the, in the children's books I've ever seen, Jesus is looking up, and they're, they're lowering this fellow down to Jesus' feet. And that's what we see, but it's not what Jesus saw. And I'm not making that up, am I? I'm not saying, you know, this is, I have a really neat insight into what Jesus saw, because the text actually tells us what Jesus saw. What Jesus saw was their faith. I mean, it's interesting, in all the clutter, that's what Jesus saw. With this obviously paralyzed man now lying down on the floor beneath him, what Jesus sees in this is, well, yes, the man is obviously paralyzed, but what Jesus sees is that these are people who have faith. Um, 
Their faith showed itself by their works, their perseverance, their determination, their conviction, and, and probably Jesus could also read it in their eyes. Uh, here in this crowd, and it was a very mixed crowd as we'll see, there's this group of friends who have this deep conviction that Jesus can heal their paralyzed friend. Now, my question is this, where did that faith come from? Where did that faith come from? And if you think about it, the answer is, it came from Jesus. It was who Jesus was, what Jesus had done, what Jesus does, what Jesus is like, that created that faith within them. And that's a very interesting thing because there's a, there's a kind of common view that, w- that we just decide to believe. We just decide to believe in Jesus. But you can't just decide to believe in Jesus. You, you actually can't do it. Um, people will tell you they can do it. Well, I'll, I'll believe in Jesus when I decide. And I usually say to them, well, just just humor me. Decide right now you're going to believe in Jesus. You can stop doing it in 20 minutes' time, but decide right now you are going to believe in Jesus to prove to me you have the power to believe in Jesus. And, of course, we can't do it. Which teaches us a very important lesson. And the really important lesson is that in situations like this, the resources to transform them are not found in us. They're not found in anything that we can work up. And sometimes that's where people are looking, isn't it? They're looking within themselves for the resources that will transform their situation and meet their deepest needs. And if you were in that situation, then what this passage, this amazing miracle would teach you is you need to stop looking for faith in yourself and start looking to Jesus. And as you look to Jesus, as you read about Jesus, as Jesus begins to walk off the pages of the Gospels and you begin to see who He really is, then then you sense, as these men sense, that, that amazing magnetism of Jesus that draws you to believe in Him. And that was what had happened to these men, the four who carried Him, the paralytic as well, and these other friends who had accompanied them. So, the first lesson is that it's Jesus who draws people to faith. It's, it's actually quite humbling, isn't it? Because we think we can do it, but then we discover we can't. And what we read here is that He can. But then there's a second lesson, and, and it's this, that Jesus sees people's, including ourselves, Jesus sees people's deepest needs. And that, of course, is the the kind of unsynchronized part of what happens here. They brought their friend to Jesus so that Jesus will heal them, and it it looks at first sight as though Jesus actually ignores the fact the man is paralyzed. 
and he speaks to him about the forgiveness of his sins. Remember one of our children who is a surgeon uh, telling me he went on a course uh, to prepare for massive traumatic events, a bomb going off, huge automobile accidents, bodies all over the place. I said, one of the really interesting things he learned in the, in the, in the course of the course from, from these people who are experts in, in going to these major trauma situations was how to see what the most critical needs were in the midst of all the blood and the broken bones. Because, you know, I imagine that, you know, even for someone who is used to dealing with people who have been injured, you go into a situation and there are broken bones, there are, there's blood all over the place. Um, and, and you need to be able to, you need to be able to go and deal with the life-threatening things that may not look as serious as some of the more bloody things do. And this is, this is what Jesus does. And it's interesting, I'm sure these men who had, who had brought this friend, uh, they believed in Jesus, and what they wanted from Jesus was that their paralyzed friend would be healed. And that was so important, but it wasn't the most important thing in the world. Jesus saw more clearly than the friends who knew the paralyzed man best. And that's always true. Um, you know, if you, what, what is the need of the world du jour? Well, the need of the world do the last few days has, has been climate change, hasn't it? That's the most important thing in all the world. But uh, if life is but a fleeting breath, it's the most important thing in all the world. But if life goes on forever after death, it can't possibly be the most important thing in the world. And here what is, what is present in this room is the one who has come from the world of heaven where thinking is clear, where priorities are set. And he sees this man who is paralyzed and says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Because he sees that is the, the deepest need. It's the original need. And it's interesting to see the response there is to this, because the response to, there is to this tells you a great deal about the people who are in this room, and it actually tells you a great deal about ourselves. They will not welcome you to the U.S. Senate or to the United Nations if you are a teenager with the message, the greatest need of the world is for the forgiveness of sins. But interestingly, I listened to an, a brief interview with Mark Rylance, the, the great English actor who was involved in one of the marches or protests or whatever it was the other day, and he happened to say, and you know you need to apply this to ourselves. You need to apply this to the, 
the alienations in our own lives, the mess we're in, including myself. Maybe Shakespeare taught him that, that the, the deepest need of the human heart is the need for our alienation with God to be resolved. And you see, when that is resolved, we've got the makings of resolving, if not finally solving, many of the other alienations we experience in life. And that leads us to the third thing that I think is worth noting here because it's, uh, it's very evident in this passage that Jesus also draws out people's antagonism. It's amazing, isn't it, that if you go to the United Nations and tell the great ones of this world, the elites, that our chief need is for climate change, you will be applauded. Whether they'll do anything about it or not is kind of incidental. You will be praised. But if you tell them that the greatest need in the world is for the forgiveness of sins that only Jesus can bring, then you will be victimized. And that's not a 21st century novelty, is it? Because the third thing we see in this passage is that the Jesus who draws people to faith and sees people's deepest needs is also the Jesus who always draws people's antagonism. And so we're told in verse 6 that there were scribes sitting there. Now, I think almost all scribes were Pharisees. Uh, They were the scribes of the Pharisees. And in recent years, as some of you know, there have been efforts to rehabilitate the Pharisees, and certainly not all Pharisees were Pharisees. Um, I mean, Nicodemus seems to have been a fairly regular fellow. Uh, Gamaliel didn't want uh, Saul and his pals to be persecuting the church. So, we shouldn't put all Pharisees in the same box, but there was a box for these Pharisees. And and the way they're introduced by Mark, it it really draws out our emotions. If you just see the scene, which Mark's gospel often helps you to do, just close your eyes and see the scene. There is Jesus. This man has been let down through the roof. There's dust everywhere. It's standing room only. but the scribes are sitting there. Just the verb tells you everything, doesn't it? We're crowding in, and you, you take up more space sitting than you do standing, and these people are sitting there. What are they doing sitting there? Why have they come early? Well, the narrative tells us, doesn't it? The reason that they came early was because they were suspicious of Jesus. They were, they were there to raise questions. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't need to say, what are you thinking? He knows already what they're thinking. I don't think that's necessarily a supernatural thing. <laughs> I think probably most of the people in the room knew what they were thinking. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Who do you think you are? It's blasphemy to say this. Only God can forgive sins. Now, let's give these Pharisees credit 
for not making one of the most common mistakes that you hear in the media almost constantly. They do not believe this man can forgive his own sins or forgive himself. We're up to our eyes in people saying this. What you need to learn to do is to forgive yourself without thinking that you can actually forgive yourself. You can come to terms with yourself. You can accept the reality of your life, but you can't forgive yourself. I mean, it's inane, isn't it? Sinclair Ferguson forgives Sinclair Ferguson. Well, it's rubbish. Some little boy needs to stand up and point the finger and say, the king's got no clothes on, and yet it's all around us. And particularly, we cannot forgive our own sins because whatever damage our own sins have done to us, sin is in its very nature against God. That's what David discovered, Psalm 51, the opening words, isn't it? Against you and you only have I sinned. And he ransacks the Hebrew vocabulary to describe this reality that has distorted his life and has damaged others. But he doesn't say, I forgive myself. He cries out to God because he knows only God can forgive sins. And, and so, their, their assumption was right. Only God can forgive sins. But my problem with what they say here is it, it just comes off the tongue too lightly. Who was it that said, you know, God will forgive, that's His business? You think of the one who's in the room and he knows this is in their thoughts and he knows you, you are so superficial in your understanding of God and in your understanding of sin that you have no concept whatsoever of what it will cost God to bring the forgiveness of sins. You have, no, you have no notion of the fact that the whole of the Old Testament pointed forwards. David himself in Psalm 51 cried out that there would be a sacrifice that would bring the forgiveness of his sins, for which sins there was no sacrifice. And David, certainly without fully knowing what he was praying, was praying, God, send somebody who will take my place and bear my judgment. So, yes, they didn't make our modern mistake, but their understanding of sin was far too casual. And you can see how deeply irritated they were. He's committing blasphemy. It was the first thought in their mind. They didn't think, can he be the Messiah? Can he be the Son of God? Can he be the figure promised in Isaiah 53 who would bear the sins of men and women? And yet, I think there may be an even, an even more important reason. I think it was I think it was maybe the word forgiveness that drew forth this reaction. Forgiveness of sins. That wasn't how these Pharisees looked at 
sins. Actually, it's not how most people look at sins. Most people look at sins as, yeah, I've sinned. I need to find some way of compensating for my sin. You know, when people are spiritually awakened, that's often their first thought. How can I live a better life that will balance the scales of God's justice so that the bad things are outweighed by the good things? And if I can outweigh the bad things by the good things, then clearly I'll be acceptable to God. And so they don't look for forgiveness. They look for betterment. Wouldn't be surprised that that's one of the reasons why self-help books sell so well when the gospel is absent. What you need is not self-improvement. What you need is forgiveness. And you see, as soon as Jesus mentions the word forgiveness, He implies that this man is a sinner who needs forgiveness, and that those around are sinners who need forgiveness. I remember an older minister telling me one day, a woman in great distress, a doctor, called him and wanted to meet with him. She was greatly distressed. They met in a hotel. You, you wouldn't do that today as a minister. And after some conversation, he said to her, my dear, have you ever asked the Lord for forgiveness? That was a great question. Have you ever asked the Lord for forgiveness? She picked up her handbag and went straight out the hotel lobby. She was so irritated. Forgiveness was not what she needed. Because that would involve humbling myself. That would involve, you see, by telling this man in the hearing of all that his sins were forgiven, he was in, in, in preaching about forgiveness, he was implying their sinfulness and implying that only when they became conscious of their sinfulness would they ever see their need for forgiveness. So when somebody feels no need for the forgiveness of God, what it tells you about them is they don't know themselves and they don't know God. They may argue with you till they're blue in the face that that's not true. But it was evident to Jesus that these men didn't understand. They didn't understand their, their Old Testament. Um, they, they were the older brother in Jesus' parable in Luke 15, weren't they? When the Father pardons the wayward son, the older brother who thinks he's never done anything wrong that would really upset the father. Do you remember what Luke says as he records Jesus' parable? He was angry. Actually, that would, that would be a pretty good test of where we are ourselves, wouldn't it? You know, Somebody at the front of the church is going on about forgiveness and sin, and if I'm… So, so how are you responding? Shield, defense, anger? And you see, the gospel tells us, that tells Jesus everything about you, and it told Jesus everything about these scribes. 
they were resisting not just His power to heal, they were irritated by the fact that He spoke to this man about the way He could forgive this man's sins. And that leads us to the fourth element here. Jesus draws out uh, people's faith in this marvelous way. Jesus sees our deepest needs. Jesus draws out antagonism, but Jesus also transforms our lives. And the conversation is really interesting, isn't it? He says, okay, follow my thinking. Which is the more difficult thing to say, or which is the easier thing to say? Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? from one point of view, they're equally easy to say. I've just said them fairly easily. But they're not really equally easy, are they? I mean, if I say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, who can, who can you know, what, what's, the, what's the validation of that? But if I say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk, then whether I have the authority to do that or not is instantaneously present. And so, Jesus says this beautiful thing, to prove that I have the authority, I, the Son of Man, have the authority to forgive sins, which words are relatively easy to say, but so difficult to accomplish. I'm going to do what seems to be the more difficult thing to prove. And He says to the man, get up pick up your bed, and go home. And the man gets up, picks up his bed, and walks out. I, you know, I wish there had been iPhones in a way in those days, you know. I mean, the little boy in me wants to see this man with his roll here under his arm, walking past the scribes and going, It makes you want to cheer, doesn't it? This, this, this is a paralyzed man who's been despised and helpless, and this is a Savior who's also been despised. But he shows his authority to forgive sins by transforming this man's life and enabling him to live as he was intended to live, as a, as a whole person, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me your praise should sing. And Jesus introduces this, this very striking self-description. He calls Himself the Son of Man. Now, it's interesting in the Gospels, nobody, nobody calls Jesus the Son of Man except Jesus. When Stephen is dying in Acts chapter 7, he sees the Son of Man at the right hand of God. And there are two other references in the New Testament, just in case you're interested, to the Son of Man in the book of Revelation. And when Jesus says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He's, he's not just speaking about Himself as man in general. It's not just a modest way of talking about I. He's thinking about the figure that appears in the vision of Daniel, 
who goes to the throne of the Most High and receives from Him a, a kingdom in whose power He transforms people's lives. The Son of Man is the Son of God who has received authority to establish His kingdom to bring in a new order of reality. But the interesting thing in the Gospels is that Jesus usually uses that self-description when He's talking about His death and resurrection. And I think that's why it's here. To show that the Son of Man who has come into the world to experience the humiliation and rejection of men and women, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again from the grave, has the authority to forgive sins. I'm going to show you I also have the authority to transform whole lives. And so, here in Mark, the verb that's used is a verb that's sometimes used about the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, I suppose we could almost say that by telling this man to rise, what Jesus means is, because of what I'm going to do through my death and my resurrection, I want you here and now to be one of those who shares already in the transforming power of that resurrection. And the man picks up his mat. I mean, it's, it's a picture, isn't it? The man has been a prisoner of his mat for who knows how long, and now the mat no longer holds him a prisoner. He's forgiven, and he's free. Oh, yes, praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet your tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me? Oh, yes, who like me? His praise should sing. Forgiveness does not lead in every case to physical wholeness in this world. This man would still get sick. He would still get ill. But it's like a moment when Jesus switches on the light to show people in this room and around this house what He's come into the world to do to deal with my deepest need and bring me forgiveness, and then to begin to transform my life so that it begins to look like, so that our life together as a fellowship begins to look like, so that people feel when they come among us, this feels just a little like what life was meant to be. Oh, yes, this is… this is in my top five for saying, go, Jesus, and wanting to cheer him for being a great Savior and friend and Lord. Well, I hope he's yours too. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his insight into our real needs, for his knowledge of us. We Remember that the Gospels tell us that He knew what was in people. We pray You would help us not to hide from Him. We pray that we may come to Him in all our need, in all our sinfulness, and 
be given His forgiveness and find through that forgiveness that our lives begin to be transformed. Thank you for what a a great Savior He is. Thank you for the way in which He brings faith to birth in us. Help us to keep looking at Him, admiring Him, being amazed by Him, and rejoicing in His grace. We pray this in His name.